0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday to gather together with the redeemed, to rejoice in our common salvation, to sit under the means of grace, to open the scriptures and encourage one another, exhort one another, comfort one another. Whatever we need, Lord, we find it from your word. And we again pray for the scattered saints around the world, many of whom are so hungry for Fellowship, And we pray that they would uh, know that they're a part of what we're doing and they're on our hearts and in our prayers. And we ask you for your blessing on today's services in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, what we're going to do, so we've got to make some progress. I've got to get done with this verse 14 just so Jessica can put something different on the Internet. <laughs> week after week, it's the same verse. Okay, so let's finish the verse, go to another one, and then I know there's still questions because people were asking him last week again. The number of implications and applications are amazing. And if you took Ryan's class on hermeneutics, do you remember one of the key ideas is that the meaning is one? All right? The meaning, there's only one meaning, and that's the author's intended meaning but implications and applications are many right and so in this particular passage I don't think I've ever seen so many implications and applications and we've discussed this for two and a half weeks now and uh, we will probably never exhausted but we we'll at least try to make sure we cover the questions that you have that are applied in your your own lives so that's, that's what we want to do but let's get this verse and move on to the next one I want to do the cross-references. I want to talk about some of the Greek. Um, I think I mentioned some of this. The, the do not be bound together. Remember, bound together was an unusual word. It was used in the Old Testament for not yoking two different kind of animals to a, to a yoke. And again, just to reiterate, the meaning is one. Implications and applications are many. And we've determined, I think, to everyone's satisfaction, the meaning of this passage by looking at the context of, of the Corinthian correspondence, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And the meaning is that Paul wants Christians to separate from pagan idolatry, which included sexual immorality. So those were the two issues in Corinth, the sexual immorality and fellowship at the pagan idol feasts. Now, that that we know the meaning is. Now, what well, we're trying to say, okay, so we don't have Corinth. Uh, of course, paganism never goes away, does it? It's the default religion of the human race. But what does God want us to separate from is what we've been talking about. So bound together, I mentioned that. The partnership would mean having shared purposes and activities, the Greek word. Uh, That's translated partnership. According to Lao and Nida's um, Greek lexicon, that word means shared purposes and activities, uh, righteousness. Uh, so what par- partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? That's pretty straightforward. Or fellowship, koinonia, has light with darkness. Now, let's look at a passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 uses... The same word koinonia, although it's translated differently in the New American Standard. One Corinthians ten sixteen, where in one Corinthians ten, Paul is using the experience of the wilderness wanderers to make an application to the Corinthians. The wilderness wanderers experienced God's deliverance. The blood was put on their doorposts, they came through the sea, they are baptized in the cloud and in the sea, Paul says. And so they experienced the same things that the Corinthians did. They'd been baptized. They'd received the Holy Spirit. They, would through the blood atonement, had come out of the world. But the wilderness wanderers, after they came out, they went immediately into idolatry. Remember, they partied and they had the golden calf. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are like your fathers if you don't escape from the temptation where God gives a means of escape. But then he goes to their love feasts and he makes an application and he says because we have the Lord's Supper, that's our fellowship. It's our fellowship with the Lord and with one another. And if you go to the pagan feasts that are dedicated to the idols you are having fellowship with demons. And you're sharing in the cup of demons. So then that's where that word fellowship comes in. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It's not... Okay, starting with verse 16. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ. Now that word is koinonia. Koinonia, a fellowship. Okay? So isn't the cup... A blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Koinonia. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That I think sacrifice to idols is anything or that idols anything? No, but I say that the things the Gentiles sacrifice is sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. So the term, the fellowship is with the Lord, and we're sharing together in the blood atonement that's commemorated at the Lord's Supper, and we're sharing in the in the body commemorated in the Lord's Supper and we shouldn't share with demons. So that's fellowship. So we should have no fellowship with darkness. Now let's do cross-references. Let's start with Sam Madrid and go down that line. Exodus 34, 16 for Sam, Norma, Deuteronomy 7, 2, and 3, and uh, Jeremy, John 15, 18, and 19, Ben, Romans 13, Twelve through fourteen, Chris. Do one John one six. One John one six. Okay, Sam. When you're ready. Thirty four 16. sixteen from Exodus. Okay. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlots with their gods. Okay, so the, the concern there, he's using the term harlot. In a spiritual sense of idolatry and the two issues again in Corinthians were immorality and pagan idolatry and interestingly if you look at the history of paganism almost every form of pagan worship involves some sort of immorality it's very very common especially in places like India immorality is their act of worship. It's tantric, tantric Buddhism. Um, And so the two are mixed together as it was in Corinth. So obviously that would be a poison pill for Christians to stay involved with that if they claim that they're a Christian. It would be a spiritual poison pill. Okay, and the the next passage was, uh, what was it? Deuteronomy 7. Yes, 2 and 3.
1: And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons.
0: Right. Now, that was the Lord's way of preserving Israel as a nation and to keeping them from idolatry. Because as soon as they started intermarrying with the pagans, they're going to end up with the pagan religions coming into their beliefs and practices, and it's going to pollute the purity of their worship of Yahweh. Okay, the next passage was John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you
1: as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world.
0: That is why the world hates you. So there's a built-in enmity between Christians and the world. Now, remember, in one of these lectures, I gave a little explanation of the term world. It's got a range of meaning. And here it means the world in its sinfulness or its fallenness and his rebellion against God. And so, the Christian message is not compatible with the beliefs of the world. I use that passage in the introduction of my book, actually. When you see a huge Christian movement that's immensely popular with the world, then you know it's not the gospel. Right? It can't be the gospel. Because if you actually proclaim the gospel in its purity, It's going to cause you to be divided from the world every single time. Because the world cannot stand to hear that they're going to hell if they don't repent. They don't want to hear that. Okay, go ahead, Ben. Tell the passage.
2: Yep, Romans 13, 12 through 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires.
0: Yep. Famous verse, that last verse was the one, remember the story of Augustine's conversion? That that was the passage he read. He heard some... He had the scriptures, and he heard some kids playing, playing, saying, "Does anybody remember the story better than me?" Take and read, take and read, if I remember right. And he was looking at that passage, and, and he was convicted of his immorality, and, and the Lord converted him. Yes, the next passage, Chris. All right. First John one
2: verse six: If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth.
0: Yeah, there's that word koinonia, fellowship again. So if we if we have fellowship with the Lord, then we can't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The two are incompatible. If we walk in darkness, we don't really have fellowship with the Lord. Now, we're going to go to verse 15 before we start on our discussion. I'm making progress. (laughs) All right. Uh, Verse 15, for what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, he's using a number of terms here. He used the term bound together, partnership, fellowship, harmony. And this word harmony means to come to an agreement or a joint decision. And so we can't come to an agreement with the enemy of Christ. Belial is a, um, used as a name for Satan during the intertestamental period. And then another term, in common. That's not the best translation. Uh, the, the word in the Greek is meris, to have a share, a portion, or a lot is what that means. To have a share, a portion, or a lot. So what has a believer to share or have a portion with with an unbeliever? Now, these the series of rhetorical questions has an implied answer what is the implied answer none, none. nothing yes good <laughs> good all right so it's not that hard as I said before the difficulty isn't determining Paul's meaning it's pretty straightforward The difficulty is what are the valid or invalid applications to this and now those we've been exploring now for several hours and people have been calling me and emailing me with more questions. <laughs> right? Here's one that somebody gave me. Would it be wrong to join the Catholics to fight abortion? Okay, I hear two no's. Anybody got a yes? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Well, okay, here's, what I, here's my point. And there are pro-life organizations that are created by Catholics that are very well organized and they do various things and evangelicals have joined those organizations in order to work to fight against abortion. Okay, that's the point. All right, Keith. but
2: I don't think I would join a Catholic organization, even though I said yes, to fight abortion because the Pope said so. If I'm doing it because the Pope said so, and they implied, the implied authorities that the Pope has authority to dictate our actions, I wouldn't do it. If they said we're against abortion because we believe Scripture says so, I would be free to join because the authority for their actions, they're drawing from two different sources then.
0: So then we'd be agreeing with them that abortion is sinful and that it's a blight on our society, and therefore... We could agree on that on that much, and and work toward that. All right, I I thought that'd be more controversial. Okay, well we got dissenting opinions, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs>
1: well, I have a friend who's um, a missionary to Muslims, and in so doing, um, would agree that Allah is our Christian God, and that it's. Find to continue in their worship habits and practices as long as they agree that Messiah is the Lord
0: Jesus. Okay, uh, I've heard of that. I don't agree. <laughs> I don't agree because, for one thing, usage determines meaning, and in the term Allah, was a, I think if I remember right, it comes from like this moon god that out of this pantheon that that uh, Muhammad decided to, to, to grab the name. And I would say in some very significant ways, the Muslim definition of God is different than ours. For one thing, I heard this guy at that Christian think tank I went out to in California. There was a very articulate Guy from England who, who uh, was talking about Islam and had and he knew the Quran like n- nobody had ever seen and he said that there's no concept in Islam that God is a God of love. He says Allah doesn't love anybody. All Allah does is threaten you. And and there's no love. So that right there you don't have the same definition. Yes.
1: The original thing about abortion, it, the issue I would have with it is joining. We join in the concept of being anti-abortion. Yes, I agree with that easily. Why join the organization? Isn't the ultimate statement there then or the ultimate effect to
0: create something like Christians or Catholics and evangelicals together? Okay, good point. I definitely wouldn't join. Now, you know, this could be broadened to maybe let's try to make this a general question. But. Can Christians... Okay, let's just make this real uneasy here. (laughs) Can Christians join a political party? Can Christians join a labor union? All right, okay, they do and we do, and most people don't have a problem with it, but I have talked to Christians who ended up, for example, in a labor union who just absolutely was miserable for them because they had nothing in common... With anybody else in the union, one friend of mine was basically blackballed and mistreated and made it impossible for him to do his job because he'd go to the union meetings and speak up because they were promoting liberal causes from A to Z, from everything from abortion to whatever else, you know. And he felt uncomfortable. But I don't think it's wrong because a lot of people have no choice. They're forced to join labor unions to have a job. Okay, go ahead. Well, I think
2: when it comes to political parties, I'll take that one first, that as a citizen I join political parties and I vote as a citizen because God has put me here. <laughs> and as a citizen I have opinions. And in our Constitution and in the government that God has put us under, okay. I'm asked and my responsibility, my civil responsibility is to vote and give my opinion so that we have a government together. And our government is, okay. is defined that way. But I do that as a citizen, not as a Christian. I'm not trying to Christianize our government or look to bring the kingdom of God on earth for my political, by politicizing Christianity and trying to put in, in place the representative of Jesus Christ on this earth so that America becomes a Christian nation. I think it's an oxymoron. You can have a nation of
0: Christians, but not a Christian nation. Okay. I would agree with Keith that... Paul, for example, appealed to Rome because it was his citizenship right to do so, okay? So that participating in the political process is something that our government encourages us to do. It's something that our Constitution gives us the freedom to do. So, therefore, we're just exercising our citizenly responsibilities. But sometimes for Christians, like the Christian Reconstruction Movement, then there's a doctrinal component. They're saying we need to take over the government and institute Old Testament law and reinstitute anything in there, including stoning rebellious teenagers. I remember I was in the theology class with Dr. Robert Rakestraw, wonderful brother, and we get to talking about Reconstruction, and I was the only one in the class that knew about it. Nobody else in the class had ever heard of it. So Raikstra and I were going back and forth talking about what they believe, and he'd say something, and I'd say something, and he'd say something. And and so we were talking about they want to reinstitute slavery, they want to reinstitute anything in the Old Testament. And then he said, well, they even want to stone rebellious teenagers. And I said, well, that's one idea that maybe has some merit. No, (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) So... uh, Anyhow, yeah, I would agree that if, you're, if, you're, if somebody says being political is the way you institute the kingdom of God in America, I would say I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with you or your agenda. But if you're saying being political is a citizenship, right, and an opportunity for us to be salt and light to restrain evil, go for it. All right? I think we can agree. Yes?
2: Yeah, one time I went out uh to some sort of a convention uh, set up about abortion. There were the Catholics there, you know, they were against abortion. And they, were, they gave you a bag, and, you know, you'd walk through and they'd uh, put uh, literature in the bag, you know, like they do in a lot of conventions. And the Catholics were putting rosary beads and all this other Catholic stuff in your bag. And, uh, and of course, when it came time for me to pass out a track uh, showing why Rome was wrong, the uh, Catholic officials jumped all over me and, and kicked me right out of there. <laughs> this was I an surprised? abortion.
0: Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, oh, Larry, you had
3: one that you asked me last week. I think myself and a couple other folks have asked to you know about the situations of marriage. When you think you're and marrying somebody who was saved and it turns
0: out a little different. Turns out they were. not yeah, marriage is a, an interesting application. All right. You, follow, you need to follow Paul's guidelines in 1 Corinthians 7. That's, that's where he gives us a guideline. So if somebody, uh, and this does happen. Let me, did I say this recently? Let me give you my advice on marriage. No, there, there, no, 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 no. I don't get to tell my advice. No, this is for you single persons that would be thinking about getting married. 35 years is not enough that I've gotten uh, expert on it. But this is what I tell people, and I think it's really good advice, to avoid that situation. Because a lot of heartache that I've seen in my pastoral life has been people who thought they were marrying a Christian and it turned out they were not. And usually what happens is somebody becomes romantically interested in another person and reveals to the other person that they're a Christian and then the other person who's interested says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too because of the motive of wanting the relationship. And they'll go along with it, and they'll go to church. And this has happened so many times, it's like an epidemic. They'll go, yeah, yep, I want a Christian marriage, and I want to go to church, and yep, and I'll even want to read the Bible. And as soon as they're married, boom, never won't go to church, don't want to hear anything about it, don't want to pray, don't want anything Christian. Well, what you had was a person who was willing to be Christian for the sake of getting married but who hadn't really been converted. Now, how do you avoid that? The way you avoid that is that you just go to church, not for the reason for finding a spouse. You go to the church for the reason of serving God and hearing the word. And as you're going to a good Bible church over the years, if you become romantically interested in someone, make sure it's someone else who's been there on their own accord, hearing the gospel, serving the Lord, whether or not they were going to get married or not. Because that person is going to stay Christian after you marry them. Uh, Does that make sense? No, no, I think that's some good advice. Okay, because that, that will just keep you from a 1 Corinthians 7 situation where the unbeliever leaves. Or the unbeliever doesn't leave, and you have no recourse, really, but to work for their conversion. Yes, but marriage is not the best evangelistic plan I ever saw. (laughs) I mean, for one thing, you can only work that plan on one person. (laughs) Better preach the gospel and marry a Christian. Okay, yes, Carla. My comment's a little out of
1: joint with
2: with the topic right now, but it was more on a PS on, on what we were saying earlier, that
1: if you were going to work with the Catholics together, uh, can you just work alongside of them without joining their group or um, Almost and,
0: anything. That, yeah. yeah, just about any organization will accept volunteers. Yeah, I think, I think you could, if they're going to go down and distribute, let's say what they're trying to do, um, although on the other hand, you know what It would be even better? Join somebody like our friend uh, Betty McGuire. She, by the way, she needs help. She needs financial help. Do you know who Betty McGuire is? She is a wonderful Christian lady, godly Christian lady, who does a great job of intervening with young ladies that are planning on abortion, and she will bring them in and take care of their needs, make sure they have diapers and they have everything they need, um, help them find housing jobs, whatever they need. Betty does a fabulous job, and she called me the other day, and she says, I, I just don't know where to get support anymore because the churches are so... The churches, the secret churches, don't even want to have her come in and talk because they don't want any controversy. And abortion is controversial. So, that, so she doesn't know where to go because she doesn't know where there's an evangelical church. So I would like her to come. Uh, we'll have to have her. So if you haven't met Betty... She is delightful. So you don't have to join the Catholics. Go help Betty do what she does. Yes? I was going to stir up
2: some controversy on the marriage side. Uh-oh. I don't see in Scripture where it says it's a sin to marry a non-Christian.
0: Hold on here. Hold on here. Oh, just, just a second. I'll <laughs> Hold on. I, know I'm going to,
2: I know I'm going to get thumped here, but I... I... <laughs> well, go be brave. No. I don't think that marriage is eternal.
3: If the unbelieving spouse is willing, well, before.
0: Yeah, that's after they're married. I think, I think I can find a verse, but go ahead. You can have your opinion.
2: I don't think that marriage is eternal, and being married itself is not a sin if it's held in honor and you're not having adultery or fornication. We have uh, Esther, we have other examples of that happening in the Bible. I also don't think in a providential worldview, if I want to get married, that it's wrong to go to a church and look in a church for somebody I would like to get married. I'd much rather do that than go to a bar. um, Yeah, I'm not saying it's
0: wrong to look in a church, but make sure you find somebody that's there for
2: the right. I understand, but if you're looking for a wife and looking for a Christian wife, going to a Christian uh, church and having... And and looking who is there is a much better option than some of the other things Uh, that are there. Yeah, I'd say it is definitely a better option. And even though I'm saying that marriage, uh, I don't believe that marriage to an unbeliever is a sin, I have three children, and I would strongly encourage and do everything I can to encourage them to marry a Christian because I think that if you do marry a non-Christian, you're marrying sorrow in in a certain way. It's sorrow incarnate because the key foundation for both of your lives is different. And that's going to be a, a pain that you're going to
0: carry for the rest of your life. Okay, now, now let me... Now, what if the person is very but, uh, Well, let me, let me first cite a verse that I think might contradict what Keith no, just Now you can thump me. All right, now I'm going to thump Keith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39. 1 Corinthians 7.39. This would be my... You know, you, you, what you'd be saying is that 2 Corinthians 6.14 doesn't apply... To marriage that 's the only way you can have that position, but I think there's another verse that's a better one. It says here, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. There you go that 's my thumb, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> only in the lord but she it, but
3: she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment but the, one the lord no is joined together let no man separate once she is married
0: once she is married she's joined okay yes 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 she's married well i don't know only in the lord well i suppose but uh go ahead <laughs> <laughs> Than well, Lincoln. <laughs> what I
1: wanted to say originally uh, doesn't really f- fit with continuity with what was just said, but um, I wanted to make a comment um, about how we, we best be careful about how we, we don't want to categorize people and label them and reject them because we call them Catholic. I have a very dear friend who is a born-again Christian, a leader in his uh, church. I guess I better not say the name, uh, but... Um, he is definitely born again, and he, I asked him, why do you remain in the Catholic Church? Are you, do you consider yourself like a missionary? And I think that's maybe God's purpose for him there because there's quite a, a segment of people within that church who are born again in their leadership, their teaching classes, leading prayer meetings. Hmm. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, the Bible gives us one test or one standard for um, our our ability to fellowship and have true koinonia fellowship and work together, and that's in Ephesians. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and um, who are we to, to judge people because we think they're Catholic or this or that? Okay. We better be very careful not to put labels on I know, but we're going dis- to probably disagree here. I'm, I mean, thoroughly. it is it is true we have to be careful if we're going to um, serve in ministry with them and know their doctrine, Absolutely. I was in a nursing home ministry once, and when I discovered the people I was working with believed you had to be baptized to be saved, that was—I yeah. I gave it a lot of prayer and I talked to them about it, and then I left. So we—well, uh, let, me, let me
0: let me—you well, okay. may not have been here. We discussed this one earlier, and there's some people here that have been saved out of Catholicism, and the reason they feel they could not stay there is that the Eucharist is idolatry. Right, I, and, I agree with that. Okay, I so do. that's what how they felt.
1: But but let's not say, oh, you're a Catholic. I'm not going to be friends with you or fellowship with you or or join hands because we don't know if they belong to the Lord or not. They may be. Yeah, we're not saying we have
0: to dissociate, but we don't go to their pagan feast. No, no, okay, I wouldn't do that. Okay. Yeah, there's no description. Lincoln is next, then Catherine, and then Jackie. So the question I have is, um, I hear what Keith's saying, and I, and I kind of understand his point, but I'm also stuck with, uh, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the problem I have is that seems to be a command in violating that command to, to marry. I think most Christians would believe that that's a valid application, and I would take it that way myself. You know, I mean, I understand in circumstances the where you disagree. thought the person was a Christian, and, and yeah. you know that. So it gets complicated. But up front, it seems to be a. Yeah, and and as you bring it to Catherine, let me say something else. I, I gave an application to this to somebody when I was, where was I? Oh, I was up in Pine City. He was talking about this pastor who was caught in adultery. All right, then the pastor, rather than repenting, divorced his wife and ran off with a lady who was committing adultery with. And then I had lunch with somebody that knew this guy real well and said he's now on his third wife since that one. All right. And so I, what I was telling this guy is, here's something we need to start thinking about. Okay, let's just say the pastor is, has a very unhappy situation. Maybe he's even somebody who thought he married a Christian and didn't, although I'm wondering about... She probably thought he she married a Christian and didn't. (laughs) Judging by what's going on now, the the here's what I said: having an unhappy marriage is not a sin. Is that what you're saying, Keith? Well, Catherine, don't give it up yet. (laughs) It took you too long to get it. (laughs) Okay, here now. Here's what I told him. If that, let's just say that pastor, this is what it is. Oh man, I just, I, 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 my king along with my wife, and she doesn't make me happy, and I don't know. We just don't have anything in common, whatever he's thinking. That's not the end of the world. That problem will be cured at the rapture, because there's no marriage in heaven. So you're going to get delivered. Now I hope my wife isn't thinking this way. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> I'm in her style right now. I'll get delivered at the rapture. <laughs> so, so the, but, but in all honesty, just thinking that way is very helpful because we've been fed this therapeutic uh, lie that the only thing that's important is being happy. So if a certain marriage is causing unhappiness, the greater good is to divorce. They say, and I say, no. The greater good is not to find happiness. The greater good is to honor God and honor the commitment that you made to God. Amen. And and the worst thing that happens is it stays that way till the rapture, okay, or you die. Go ahead.
3: Okay, I'm reading here in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, verse eight, it says, "But I say to the unmarried and to the widowers, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to for, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion."
0: Okay. Yep. <laughs> no, no, no. Jackie is ahead of you, Keith. <laughs> Okay, Jackie.
1: Um, last week you asked to be reminded about being uh, a weak Christian yoked with a strong Christian.
0: Oh, in a marriage?
1: Um, either in marriage or in a partnership of. Okay,
0: a weak Christian and a strong Christian. Well, I think if there's signs of regeneration, in other words, if somebody has an evidence in their life that the Holy Spirit's at work, then a weak Christian won't always stay that way. All right. And I don't think it's wrong because in some ways that's how, if you look at First, Christ, or excuse me, Romans 14, remember we did that on the radio. We had a nice discussion. We help each other. We help each other and we need each other. And there's nothing wrong with that even in a marriage. Troy. Uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, Christian husband and wife is supposed to mirror that of Christ in the church. And uh, it's going to be pretty hard to, Fulfill that type of relationship unless you're sealed, unless you have the Holy Spirit. So yeah, well, it definitely creates sorrows when that's not the way it is. But but,
2: and I, that's that's a fantastic passage. But the relationship that we have with their wife is not the same kind. Our, we don't marry or have have sexual union in the same way that the pagans do for a worship experience to their gods. So we can marry. Even if and that's why we can have a, a pagan or marriage to a pagan in in Corinth because the the sexual union or the the marriage itself is not something that's eternal it's something that stops at the rapture and when I see the passage my my point in being unequally yoked is that when we go to worship with an idolatrous in, in idolatry we're being yoked to something that's eternal we're being yoked to a god okay. we're being yoked in worship to something that's, that transcends a marriage that transcends a business that transcends a friendship this is something that's eternal and i'm joining to it and god
0: says no okay and i don't see marriage as being that all right i'll agree with this much i agree that the main point of the passages we're looking at is to not go to the pagan idolatry all right and I also agree that if you are already married to somebody who's not a Christian, to stay married. It's temporary. But I would not personally think that it was appropriate to purposely marry an unbeliever because of romantic reasons. That's my opinion. All right. uh, over here? No, you got Yes.
2: Okay, so Pastor Bob, I just wanted to—you kind of started to. Sounds like you were answering that, but then, do you think it's out of context to apply this um, to marriage? And then I had a comment about it too. I was thinking about the.
0: Well, I, the, the stronger passage is the one I think I read it where it says, "Only in the Lord." Okay, that's directly applied to marriage. The one in 1 Corinthians 10:39. That would be the one I would look at. Now, the being unequally yoked, uh, it's, I think it's within reason to look at that. I think you were asking about that, weren't you, one time, about a business partnership? Oh, excuse me. First Corinthians 7.39, I had my reference wrong, where it says, only in the Lord. You're free to marry only in the Lord. That's the one I would look at. Okay? And... Besides, it just would be really dumb, (laughs) sad and and foolish, and you're not helping yourself. Well, God will use anything. That's like uh, that's like Pastor or Reverend William Snow said at North Central Bible College, and this was Reverend Snow had more aphorisms than and I they're all are still stuck in my mind. And here's one, I remember those aphorisms. He said, every great man of God I ever met was either that way because of his wife or in spite of her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you might marry somebody that drives you right to the Lord. <laughs> and, and who gets you on your knees. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, go ahead.
2: I just want to make a comment about the unequally yoked, though. then I, I, Everyone else has probably already noticed this, but I was thinking about the oxen, you know? Yeah. And um, it, sometimes when we look at things in Scripture, it's like, do not do this. You know, it's like a command. But this is sort of a thing that's saying it's practical, impractical to marry someone that's uh, you're not equally yoked with because it's like two oxen. If one, If you're trying to plow a straight line and one wants to go that way and the other one wants to go that way, you're going to get... You're not going to make any progress. You can't stay
0: on the furrow. Uh, Is there any other application? There's a lady over here. Did you have something you want to say? And then let's think of other applications, or we'll just keep moving on here. Uh, This is a, I should tell the pastors around America, if you want a hot discussion topic, this is it. (laughs) Talk about what separation means and doesn't mean. Now, Catherine, and then let's go back to our cross-references here
3: like you they were talking about if you marry uh, someone someone you find out they're not a christian well i, I just thought about if you read uh peter first peters chapter 4 starting at verse 12 it says beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you but rejoice to the extent that you partake of christ's suffering that when he is glory in his when his glory is revealed You may also be glad with exceeding joy, if you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and the God and the God of rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer, as though as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his matters. And then it goes on in saying, um chapter, uh, starting at 19 in chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator.
0: Amen. Amen. He's, he's going to take it. Here, let me, let me read uh, uh, someone from a commentary. I'm, we're looking at verse 15. And it says, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The Greek word mares means to have a share, a portion. And so this uh, Garland made an interesting application here or discussion on it. Uh, he's a commentator on Second Corinthians. Garland says this. If we ask, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? As the NIV renders, the answer is much in every way. Both are sinners loved by God. And both experience the same kinds of troubles and anxieties. He says the word translated in common, maris, however, means lot, share, or portion. And this meaning presents a quite different picture. Christians give thanks to the Father because he's qualified them, quote, to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, Colossians 1.12. Unbelievers have no share in the community or in the promises. So we definitely have things in common with unbelievers, but the most important things we don't have in common. Now, that's where I've taken issue with the seeker movement. Because in a book about the seeker movement that was required reading when I was in seminary telling us how to have a seeker church, The, the, the suggestion was to find the things that we have in common with unbelievers and make them the center focus of the church. So, whatever we have in common with unbelievers, excuse me, that's what we preach on, that's what we do. What do we have in common? But that's the absolute opposite of what the Scripture is telling us that what we have in common with the Lord and with one another is going to be the center of the church, not what we have in common. With unbelievers. Now, what are these things we have in common with unbelievers? Well, just common human needs and weaknesses and anxieties, just like he said. So you can preach on loneliness. You can preach about fear. You can preach about relationships at work, stress, and all of those things we have in common. So that's what the secret, the genius, in a perverse way, of the whole seeker movement is—that that you can actually creative thing where you erase the, the distinction between the church and the world by only focusing on those things we have in common with unbelievers. But that's exactly what the church isn't. The church is what we don't have in common with unbelievers, which is the inheritance of the light. Yes. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Diane Bukowski and Cindy.
1: If we look at verses 14 through 16 and look for important words in, in those verses... There's fellowship, communion, and agreement. Right. How can you have that with a nonbeliever?
0: You can't. Fellowship, communion, and agreement. That's a very good point. We do not have that. We have some level. If you define fellowship biblically, uh, you know, another thing that happens with the seeker movement, you create a different definition of fellowship. Fellowship is just doing things together. All right, we're going to have a fellowship event we're going bowling. We're going to have a fellowship event. We're going to have a picnic. We're having a fellowship event. We're going to go down to the art fair. We're having a fellowship event. We're going to have bingo. That's for the Catholics out there. Um, and uh, is that what the word means? No, that is just doing common human activities that people might do. Fellowship means sharing of a common life together, and that life is only common for those who know the Lord. Yes.
1: Um, what you were saying about the seeker movement. If our commonness is our humanity, then what they're actually spreading is humanism and not spiritual faith in the Lord.
0: Exactly. You're just creating a humanistic church and not fellowship. Uh, okay. Yes.
1: Um, I was... In my translation, actually um in verse fifteen, it says, "What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what is translation that, is that? it's the English standard it's, um, it's good that's a good translation i, I kind of when I look at that, i kind of get an image of um basically what he's saying is is more of the differences in inheritance right so like yeah we don't we don't have the unbeliever doesn't have any inheritance there's no portion with right
0: yeah that's exactly what that garland was saying, yeah okay. yeah it's good. That's a good application and a good translation, too.
1: God says that we should pray for those in authority. Very often I hear criticism of President Bush. He is our top authority for our country, and we should be praying for him.
0: That's true. Absolutely. We're to pray.
1: And our husbands.
2: (laughs) What I I was just going to say on the fellowship, even in our families if you have families unchristian, in your family you have a certain level of fellowship because you're in the same family and you have common parents or common brothers and sisters and you have a family but the true fellowship that christian fellowship doesn't exist unless your family members
0: uh, are christians that's true have you ever traveled i bet most people probably had this experience but have you ever traveled to some place where you really don't know anybody and meet a christian don't you immediately have fellowship? It's it's just, when I went out to that, for instance, that Christian think tank out in Escondido, and I met people from all over the world. uh, They're from Africa and Australia and Canada and what have you. And And immediately we could sit down and we had fellowship, even though I'd never seen them before, because they truly knew the Lord. So there's a common bond we have with other Christians that God creates and that's, a, but that's also why I think ecumenism is basically a waste of time at the vast. You know, we don't have to have everybody together denominationally. We just need to gather with the redeemed saints. If, who has the mic? Oh, oh. Catherine. I was One also John, thinking five, on this Bible scripture
3: here, too, in uh, First Peter, and this is in chapter 3. And I was wondering, could this be applied to everyday life or just um, uh, everyday life in discerning things or just when it comes to specific things. Uh, it says, and, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But if, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their troubles or do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, which with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as an evildoer, they, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed.
0: Yes, that, that's exactly what Peter's point is. This is how a Christian survives in a wicked world, by that very means. You know, you you... Live in a godly way so that whatever else is going on, you're, you're, there's a testimony that what God did for you. Because you're sanctified and you're different. And if you're reviled, let, let, just keep doing what God told you to do as a Christian. And that's how you survive in a wicked world. There's a passage I gave. Tell the passage and read it if you don't mind, Carla. 1
2: John 5, 11 through 13. Is that correct? Five? Yes. Okay. And the testimony is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know
1: that you have eternal life.
0: Amen. He who has the Son has life. You know, we're wondering sometimes about different churches. we we got a call from... This week, uh, Karen Karen got a call from a lady that she's been in contact with and who's using our materials a lot in Canada. And she's in a supposedly evangelical church that just refused to preach the gospel and wanted to do all this other stuff. And so she stood there fighting the good fight, her and her husband, for the gospel, preach the gospel, teach the word, preach the gospel. and And finally the elders got so exasperated with them wanting the Gospel preached and wanting the Word taught that they had a big public meeting for church discipline. And with this lady in the meeting, these elders browbeat her and and accused her of all manner of of stuff. And she says, well, can I say anything in my defense? They said, no, you may not. And... As a result, she said that what happened was she was so badly treated by these elders that 20 families walked out of that church. Now, that verse you read, you know what I wonder? How could anybody who really knows the Lord be so callous about the gospel and about saints who, who just want to hear God's word. How can you say you're an evildoer because you keep saying you want to hear God's word taught and you want the gospel? How can So I'm, here's my thought. I think we're just assuming because certain things say evangelical on the banner that everybody running it is actually a Christian. I think that there's signs that a lot of these people aren't saved. And, and therefore, they don't have a tenderness in their heart toward the terms of the gospel. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have to wonder these things. Well, whatever the case, pray for the saints. This was this poor lady. Then Karen was saying she doesn't know where to even have fellowship. It's like the next church to go to that actually has the gospel is an hour away, and th- there's a lot of tough situations. Okay, uh, Jackie. One. And then we got one more minute. We have to be done here.
1: Well, to me, if they, you know, even if their pastor or an elder or whatever, if they refuse to preach the word, it proves they're not Christian because if you were a Christian, you would crave the word and you would want the oh, word yeah. preached.
0: If somebody came to me, and well, you do, well, you actually, you just are thankful, but people come and say, oh, we want to hear the word, oh, we love it. You, and uh, how could you deny that? i got one quick thing to say. We're, we're actually working on, I have a test situation going on in Wyoming, but we're helping people start home fellowships Who are in small areas, small enough towns, where it's absolutely they can know every church, and they know there's no gospel in any of them. So we're we're trying to we're running a pilot where we're sending DVDs of our sermons to a family, and they're inviting the remnant in their town to their home, and they can do all the other things they do. I got the idea because I heard about John Piper. He has a whole church. He built a whole church building. Okay, I think I read that in the paper, right? Some of you maybe know about this. And they watch a DVD from his Saturday night. So I thought, well, if you could fill a whole church building to watch a DVD, you could probably do a living room. Okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I figure if they'll listen to Piper in a church, they'll listen to me in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I said, we'll send you the DVDs and, because there's your Bible teaching. Uh, that they'll get from our sermons here, from from whoever's preaching here, and they can pray together, they can have the kind of discussion we're having here, they can do a Bible study together, they can have communion, they can do all the things that a church does that everybody needs and still get the teaching of the Word. So if this works, and uh, I think it would be a great thing to do, so maybe others that are listening to this would be interested in, in doing something like that, and, and I'm not saying that watching us on DVD is the end-all of, of how you get your teaching, but you never know. Something like that could turn into a big enough group where you could call a pastor. Okay? So you got to start somewhere. And being how almost every denomination has made itself unsafe, we just have to start from scratch because the Lord loves his flock. I always will, If I hear from people say, oh, help us, we, we just don't have fellowship, my, my heart goes out to them. I can't even imagine it. I love the fellowship so much. I can't imagine not having it. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this discussion. And help us to not be unequally yoked, not getting involved with pagan idolatry, not getting involved with things where you don't want us. But on the other hand, Lord, on the positive side, may we find precious fellowship with dear saints that, have, that we have a lot and inheritance together. And we pray for the ones that don't have that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you upstairs. God bless.